Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and to turn this morning to the book of Daniel, chapter 1. This will be our reading in our text for this morning. Daniel comes after the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Let's read together Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasury house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Therefore you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. And at the end of ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days... When the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king interviewed them, and among all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, 
he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus, Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. So far the word of the Lord. Oh, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, I wonder what the headlines of the news sites in Jerusalem would have been like in the time of Daniel 1. Perhaps the Jerusalem Times would have run headlines like this, Nebuchadnezzar threats invasion or crisis in the capital. It was clearly a time of political instability for Jerusalem. And I think we can all identify with that to some degree, can't we? Only a quick look at the news these days shows that there's a lot of political instability, unrest, uncertainty. And brothers and sisters, I wonder as you think about all of these events, do you also feel this uncertainty creeping into your hearts and and minds? Do you worry about the way that the world is heading, about the future of the church, what sort of world your kids are going to grow up in? Well, this morning we're going to look at the world in the time of Daniel, and we're going to see that there are also plenty of reasons for Daniel and his friends to be afraid of the future. And yet it was precisely in the middle of this uncertainty, in the middle of this powerful empire, in fact, that they showed loyalty and they showed faithfulness to their God. Because they knew, they knew that God remained in control, that he would still care for them, and that he would give his children everything they needed while they were in exile. And we confess an unchanging God who ruled world politics in 605 BC and who still rules them today. Jesus Christ is king of the earth. No one can compete with his rule. And so he calls us this morning to be loyal to him and to submit our entire lives to his lordship and then to trust him, to trust him in whatever political turbulence we live in, trusting that he will also work through all of this for the good of his people. Unrest, uncertainty will have its day, but through it all, God is the sovereign king He looks after us and he calls us to be faithful and to be loyal to him. So we'll look at our text, Daniel chapter 1 this morning, with this theme, loyalty to the sovereign king. We'll see the message will be divided into three parts. We'll first see how this loyalty is challenged, and we'll see how Daniel and his friends displayed this loyalty, and finally we'll see how God rewarded that. So firstly, our text describes a challenging environment to serve God. It was the third year of, of the reign of King Jehoiakim, the king of Judah. The kingdom of Judah was in its last days, 605 BC. You see, they've repeatedly rebelled against God. They've tainted their worship with syncretism, with the worship of other gods. And they were spiritually weak, and God had pro- promised to punish them for that. They were also, at this time, they were also very weak politically. They had just lost the battle against Egypt, and Pharaoh Necho had set Jehoiakim on the throne. Jehoiakim was just just a puppet for Pharaoh. At this time, Jerusalem had no power and Judah had no say in world politics. So they were weak spiritually and they were weak politically. On the other hand, King Nebuchadnezzar was making the world headlines. Nebuchadnezzar's father had just died in Babylon and leaving him heir to this growing kingdom. 
And as the new king, Nebuchadnezzar was eager to, to expand this kingdom, to flex his muscles in the world. In fact, in, in 605 BC, he just won a, a big battle against Egypt and Assyria. And it was after he won this big victory that he came and besieged Judah. Judah was just small fry compared to the powers of Egypt and Assyria. And so this was just another chance for Nebuchadnezzar to flaunt his strength, to flex his muscles and display his power to the world. And so that's what Nebuchadnezzar does. He flexes his muscles, not only to the world, but he also flexes his muscles against God. Notice in verse 2 that he took some of the articles from the temple, from the house of God, and he carried them to the house of his own God. Now, this is a, a symbolic action in that time. It was an, an action which showed that his God was stronger the God of Israel wasn't strong enough to defend his people from the mighty Nebuchadnezzar. And so the action breathed defiance. And further, the text says that he brought them to Shinar. I wonder if you remember the name Shinar from anywhere. Shinar was, was the place where they built the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Now, the Tower of Babel was, was a place where they had wanted to make a name for themselves, to make their name great rather than honoring God's name. So Shinar is another name for Babylon, but it insinuates this opposition against God. So our text is showing that by, by taking the vessels to Shinar, Nebuchadnezzar is subverting the sovereignty of Israel's God. It's Nebuchadnezzar, not Yahweh, was king in Babylon. That's the message he wanted to bring. Well, that, this is the kingdom that God sent his people for punishment it's a challenging place to serve God, isn't it? And yet, did you notice in, in verse 2 how it says that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand? The Lord gave. You see, that the, there's a little hint here telling us that the Lord is actually directing all things, and he even allows it to make it seem like he's losing the battle. You see, he allowed the vessels from his own house to be taken to Shinar, that place where man rebels against God, where man makes himself king, it doesn't seem like God is in control, but yet we see God is the one directing all things. Even the exile is happening as part of his direction. Proverbs 21, verse 1 says that the king's heart is a, a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He directs it wherever he will. And God is also going to use the plan of King Nebuchadnezzar He's going to use the plan of the most powerful man on earth to accomplish his purpose. Nebuchadnezzar does have a plan. We need to be clear about that. Let's look a little more at what Nebuchadnezzar's plan is. Because as part of his plan, he orders Ashpenaz to take the best men from Judah's nobility. He's going to take these best men from Judah and he's going to train them as Babylonians the men with the highest IQ, the most handsome, the ones with the most potential, the future of Judah. He takes them out of Judah and brings them to Babylon. His plan was to take them out of their homeland and to make them into Babylonians. You know, Vladimir Lenin once said, give me four years to teach the children and the seed that I sow will never be uprooted. Nebuchadnezzar knew that too. And so instead of Israelite history, things like the Passover and the redemption of Israel from Egypt, Nebuchadnezzar was going to replace that with a curriculum which taught the people about his own military triumphs. 
Instead of t- teaching them the Proverbs of Solomon, they would imbibe the wisdom of the Babylonians. And instead of learning about their God, they would learn the practices of divination and the things of the Babylonian gods. This is all part of Nebuchadnezzar's plan. And as part of his plan, he also wants to give them Babylonian names. You know, in a, in a culture where names were so closely related to a person's identity, this was a really big deal. Their Jewish names, you see, they identified them as people of the Lord, people of Yahweh. Just think about the meaning of the names. Daniel's name means God is my judge. And there are the names of his friends mean the Lord is gracious, who is what God is, or the Lord has helped. Their names remind them of, of who they are, their Jewish identity, their identity as children of the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar takes them away, and he gives them Babylonian names, names which remind them of Babylonian gods, relate to Babylonian gods, names which give them a Babylonian identity. And so you see what's happening here is their Jewish identity is stripped away and they're clothed in Babylonian history, given a Babylonian diet, Babylonian names. This is Nebuchadnezzar's plan. Forget your homeland, forget your history, forget your identity, and forget your God. You're in Babylon now. You are a Babylonian and you worship Babylonian gods. Well, brothers and sisters, we can see that this is a a challenging environment to serve God in, isn't it? A challenge for them to to remember that they are a special people. They're a special people devoted to serving the Lord God and Him alone and not the gods of the Babylonians, the nations around them. And don't we also face similar challenges today? Doesn't the world also want to make us forget our heavenly homeland that we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. The world wants to make us forget that, doesn't it? They want to challenge that and instead to just, we're tempted to make ourselves comfortable in this life. By this, by that, find your contentment in this life. It's all there is. It's a message the world is telling us. Forget your heavenly kingdom, your heavenly homeland. Or aren't we also tempted to forget our true identity? that we are children of God? Doesn't the world continue to redefine identity by by our achievements, by how good we are at sports or at school or whatever it is? Or doesn't the world instead challenge our identity? Instead of being in Christ, our world tells us our identity is whatever you want to make it. You can be whoever you want to be. You can choose your sexuality. You can make your own identity. You are the one who defines that. That's what the world tells us. And so things are very different today than they, are, than they were in 605 BC. But I think we can agree that there are also many challenges for us to remain loyal to our God, to remember our homeland, and to know our identity, and to be firm and firmly rooted in our identity and established in Christ. This is the challenge that Daniel faced with his friends And so we'll see in our second point how they displayed loyalty to the sovereign king. Because it was in this challenging environment that we read in verse 8 that Daniel purposed in his heart that he wouldn't defile himself. 
Now, it's not exactly clear what was wrong with the king's food and wine. Some have suggested that it was offered to idols. Others have suggested that eating from the king's table was a sign of loyalty to to the king, and Daniel didn't want to do that. It's not clear exactly what the reason was, but what is clear is that somehow eating this food or drink would have defiled Daniel. Our text says this two times. Daniel resolved not to be defiled. In fact, this statement is is said in contrast to verse 7. Verse 7, in the original language, says that the chief of the eunuch set names upon them, but in contrast to that, Daniel said it in his heart that he wouldn't be defiled. So the contrast suggests that Daniel's resolve, it's a response to being given the Babylonian name. While he's immersed in this Babylonian culture, while he's in the land of Nebuchadnezzar, he's even given a Babylonian name, there is a line which Daniel is not prepared to cross because his allegiance belonged primarily to the Lord. He would not forget his God. That was the foundation of his identity. He was a child of the Lord, and he wouldn't forget that. Perhaps you've heard of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was an um, a preacher in American he preacher in the 18th century, and he wrote out 70 resolutions to cultivate his own growth in grace. One of them says this, Resolved, I will do whatever I think to be most to God's glory for as long as I live. Resolved to do this, whatever difficulties I encounter. He's made 70 resolutions, things like of how he would spend his time and in, in many different ways. He resolved to live the most holy life he could. And this is the type of resolve, the purpose that Daniel displayed. He said it in his heart not to defile himself despite the consequence. He wasn't dabbling his feet in, in the worldly lifestyle, was he? Trying to see how Babylonian he, be, he could become without completely losing his Jewish identity. How far he could step away from the church while still keeping his membership. No, Daniel determined, he purposed not to defile himself. Even though he was in this foreign land, the land where Nebuchadnezzar ruled, where Nebuchadnezzar flexed his muscles, Daniel's loyalty belonged to the king of kings, to the king who ruled above Nebuchadnezzar. And we have another reminder of that in verse 9. Verse 9 says that God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of eunuchs. So it's just as if Daniel, as, as he writes this, he pulls back the curtain from the stage every so often just to let us see who is the, the one behind the scenes, the director of all things. Because God is controlling even how Daniel is perceived by this foreign court, by this official. This statement reminds us of Joseph. Joseph in Genesis 39 when he was in Egypt. And we read there that the Lord was with Joseph and he showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Even the foreign courts, even the foreign prisoners, all of this is in God's control as well. And while Daniel understood that God was in control, he still took action. And notice how he took action. When the chief eunuch showed that he wasn't willing to help Daniel, when plan A wasn't working, then he tried plan B. He was creative. And he asked the steward if he and his friends could be tested on vegetables. Now, it's an interesting request, isn't it? Vegetables today does have maybe a bit more of an appeal. But back in those days, vegetable were the poor people's food. It was a plant-based diet. It didn't have the same appeal in Babylon as it might today. 
Veggies were not the proven way to be well-nourished. And so what a surprise then, at the end of 10 days, when Daniel and his friends were better in appearance and they were fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. God vindicated their resolve to live a holy lifestyle. He blessed their commitment to him. And brothers and sisters, this is recorded to show us something about our God. God was blessing their loyalty to him, their faithfulness to him, as a way of reminding all the exiles that he was still in control. Because in his control, God cares for his people. Even in the most challenging situations, the most challenging circumstances, God will preserve his people. We can be encouraged with that same truth today. Because we know that today Jesus Christ continues to gather, defend, and preserve his church. He does that as the sovereign king. He cares for his people. He defends and preserves us against all enemies, as it says in Lord's Day 19. Jesus is ruling all things for the sake of his church. He will always look after his people, just as he did with Daniel and his friends. And so we can also trust that he will preserve his people through the most challenging circumstances. And finally, we'll see that loyalty to the sovereign king is rewarded. In verse 17, we read that God gave these four young men knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. During those three years at the Babylonian University, they excelled in all their classes. In fact, when they took their finals at the end of those three years, the highest marks were given to, to Daniel and his friends. When the king interviewed them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They graduated at the top of their classes. But even more, Nebuchadnezzar actually found them to be ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters who were in his kingdom. Not only did their wisdom surpass all their classmates, all the other young men at the Babylonian University, but Nebuchadnezzar was in fact more impressed with, than, with them than with the wisest men who were actually serving in his kingdom. These men, they included magicians who were responsible for interpreting dreams, and they were quite possibly Egyptians who were in the service of the king. And these wise men in the king's court also included the enchanters who were known for their incantations. If someone was sick, these enchanters would come along, they would examine the symptoms, and they would perform certain rituals to heal them. And both of these groups together, the magicians and enchanters, they represent the best wisdom of this world, the wisest of Egypt, the wisest of Babylon. But compared to that, God's wisdom is so much greater, ten times better. And one more thing that our text mentions is that God gave to Daniel understanding in all visions and dreams. I wonder, boys and girls, who that makes you think of in the Old Testament. Who else could understand dreams and visions? Or perhaps you remember Joseph. Joseph, how God gave him the understanding of the prisoner's dreams, the baker and the butler, and later, the dreams of Pharaoh, the dreams of the fat cows and the skinny cows. And at that time, Pharaoh said to Joseph, he said, I've heard that you're able to interpret dreams. And Joseph responded, he said, it's not in me, but God will give Pharaoh an answer. And so now, God is the one who will give understanding to Daniel into dreams and visions. God is the one who is the source of wisdom, wisdom surpassing the best wisdom of this world. 
Our text emphasizes that, that he is the source of wisdom. Daniel later says in in chapter 2, verse 20, he says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. And he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the understanding. So the top marks of, of these men, it couldn't be attributed to Nebuchadnezzar's program, to his university or to his diet. No, in fact, the diet of vegetables might have led us to expect them to get the lowest marks. They received wisdom because God gave it to them. And I'd like to zoom in on that phrase in verse 17 where it says that God gave them. Because this phrase is actually repeated three times in this chapter. Firstly, in verse 2, it says that God gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And then in verse 9, the New King James Version says that God had brought them into the favor, but literally it says that God gave favor and compassion in the sight of the eunuchs to Daniel. And then finally, verse 7, God gave them wisdom. And so by pointing these reminders, our text is pointing us above the reality of the earthly events to the sovereign one who is directing everything. He directs things even when it seems like he's losing, losing the battle. Daniel 1 points us to the fact that even though human rulers might have their plans, their plans to establish a political regime, their plans which might make things very difficult for the people of God, yet God will preserve his people. He will give his people what we need. He will provide for us. Because while the kings of the earth take counsel together, while earthly rulers make their plans, we know that God has made his decree. David speaks about this in Psalm 2. I will make known the Lord's decree. And then in a prophecy about Jesus Christ, he says, the Lord has said to me, to Christ, to you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me what you will, and I will give the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. God gives the nations to his son. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's jar. This is God's plan. He has decreed to give all authority to his son. Let's just step through that. Galatians 4.4 says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. And this plan too, this plan involved powerful human rulers. Caesar Augustus in Luke 2, he made a decree But this was part of God's greater plan that God would send his son to be born in Bethlehem to fulfill many prophecies. Caesar had his plan, just like Nebuchadnezzar had his plan. But God's plan was greater. God's plan was working above it all and through it all. And it was through this plan to send his son into the world that God would ultimately preserve his people. Because Jesus came into this world and he was killed by his own countrymen. And this was also part of God's plan. This is what Peter said in Acts 2 in his Pentecost sermon. He said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This was part of the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And it was also part of God's plan to raise his son from the dead. Peter says that later in the same Pentecost sermon, let all the house of Israel therefore know that God has made him Lord, that's ruler, and Christ, anointed one, anointed king. 
He has made him Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. So Paul says in Ephesians 1, that God has raised Jesus from the dead, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. This was God's plan. Worked through the evil intentions of his own, Jesus' own countrymen, through the plan of Caesar Augustus, through the political wranglings of Pontius Pilate, through all these things, God worked his plan of redemption to save his people. His plan to seat his son on the highest throne. Jesus is the highest king, the king of kings. And so the story of, the story of Daniel shows us that, that God controls all of world history. And we also see his fatherly hand in that he provides for his people. That's still true today, brothers and sisters. With his almighty power, God guides all things so that freedom and exile, meat and vegetables, fruitful years and barren years, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us not by chance but by his fatherly hand, and we don't need to worry. Let's remember our identity, brothers and sisters, our true identity in Christ. Let's not forget who we are, that we are sons and daughters of this great king. He is our father. As his sons and daughters, we don't need to worry, but we are simply called to be faithful to him. And finally, the significance of verse 21 shouldn't be lost on us, that Daniel continued there until the first year of King Cyrus. Perhaps you remember that King Cyrus was the king who allowed the Israelites to come back to to the land of Israel, to, to return to Jerusalem. But King Cyrus was also Persian. You see, when Cyrus became king, Babylon, with all of its might, was just another fading flower. Daniel outlived the exile, and he outlived Babylon. Throughout this whole time of of Babylon's greatness, God preserved his loyal, his faithful servant, Daniel. So while Nebuchadnezzar seemed mighty, while he flexed his muscles in defiance against God, he was only a fading flower. But Christ reigns forever. He preserves his loyal and faithful servants through the most challenging circumstances. So dear brothers, dear sisters, dear congregation, will you trust in this God, in our faithful Father who directs all things, in our Lord, Jesus Christ, whose rule will last forever. He calls you this morning to trust in his rule, to be faithful and to be loyal to him. Though the nations rage, kingdoms rise and fall, there is still one king ruling over all. None above him, none before him, all of time in his hands. For his throne, it shall remain and forever stand. All the power, all the glory, I will trust in his name. Amen.